Live from Southern California, this is the Jim Rome Show. Hey now, welcome back to the Daily Jungle Clones. Hope you had a great weekend and a tremendous Father's Day, and now it is back to our grind. Rex Hoggard started things off by breaking down Brooks Kepka's win at the U.S. Open yesterday, a dominant four-day run at Aaron Hills. Also, new Oklahoma head football coach Lincoln Riley made his first appearance in the jungle, and an interview that I've been pumped for for quite some time, Gary Vaynerchuk, New York Times bestselling author, an angel investor, an entrepreneur, going two segments live from France. It was an awesome day. Alvi, let's go ahead and get that thing right now. He's a venture capitalist. He's a four-time New York Times bestselling author. He is the creator of Vayner Sports Agency. He's an early investor in companies such as Twitter, Tumblr, Venmo, and Uber. He appears with Gwyneth Paltrow, Jessica Alba, and Will I Am on Apple's first original series, Planet of the Apps. It's out right now. You can follow him on Twitter at Gary V, spelled V-E-E. We are joined right now by Gary Vaynerchuk. Gary, it is great to have you on the show today. How are you? I'm amazing, and I just found my new ringtone. I'm taking that entire audio, that intro, and that's what it is now. My man, I love it. So good to hear that. Now, Gary, you are constantly in motion. You are traveling all over the world. So where are you right now as we speak? Huh? Gary, where are you right now? I'm in Cannes, France, uh, in, uh, at the advertising festival, and uh, just landed here from New York, and, uh, and things are good, Jim. Okay, good. Listen, Gary, there are a lot of places where we could start because there are a lot of things I want to talk to you about. We can't get to all of it, but let's start with the New York Jets. You are a huge New York Jets fan, one of the biggest fans around. How did you first become a Jets fan? I came to America in the late 70s. Uh, Couldn't speak English. I walked outside in Edison, New Jersey in 1982. Somebody handed me a Nerf football and said, you're a Jets fan. I said, okay. I followed the 82 Jets every play. That entire season, they went to the AFC Championship game, and I haven't missed a snap since, Jim. Now, Gary, you've put it out there time and time again. You are looking to one day buy the Jets. This goal, Gary, is it a question of if, or do you fully believe it's simply a matter of when? Jim, to be honest, I genuinely believe I'll accumulate the wealth. Obviously, there's other variables. I wish Woody nothing but health and who knows what, where. I mean, I'm not naive that the timing may not work out. I got to focus on amassing the wealth, but to be very frank with your awesome audience, which I am one of, I just think it's going to happen. I don't know what else to tell you. I just think it's a matter of when. I was going to say, Gary, any idea when, any idea when that could happen? My honest answer to this question, like if like when my mom asks me when she's like, how long do I have to hold on? I'm always like, I actually think Jim, it's 20 years. Mm Mm-hmm. Gary so it's not tomorrow. I mean, a lot of, you know, with our, you know, upcoming one in 15 season, I'm getting destroyed on social media to do it now. A, I don't have the money. Woody's not selling. Um, it's just not there yet, but it's going to happen. And, uh, and I'm going to bring a Super Bowl to New York. Yeah, Gary, do you, I want to follow up on that in a minute, but you mentioned 20 years, Gary, and, and following you and listening to you, can you imagine how different this world's going to be in 20 years? I mean, what do you think this world's going to look like and feel like, and how different will it be 20 years from right now? biggest thing that everybody's listening needs to think about is augmented reality and mixed reality. I think everybody that's listening right now will be wearing contact lenses and some of what you'll be looking at is virtual reality. Some of it will be real life and some of it will look like some of the stuff you're starting to see from Snapchat where you have augmented reality where there's images and things in your real space. So mixed reality, Jim, I mean, I think 20 years ago, everything we're doing now seemed incredibly crazy. Uh, you know, and I think that everybody listening now has to get ready for a totally different world. Gary Vaynerchuk joining us right now. Uh, Gary, the Jets are coming off. One more thought about them. They're coming off a 5-11 and season. They have parted ways with a number of their best players. It leads to the belief, Gary, that they might be tanking. Where do you come out on that is a business philosophy. Is it a smart way of doing things, given the quarterbacks who might be available in next year's draft, or is that a toxic approach to things? Such a good question. I think you have to reverse engineer the personnel. You know, if they've given Todd Bowles the wink, wink that he's fine. Um, if you've talked to, you know, Leo Big Cat and a couple of the youngsters that you're building around, I think if you're up front with the four to five people that you have to be up front with, I'm a fan of the process. Like, I, I just think it's practical. And you pointed it out. 
with the way the rules are now. Like, let's get serious now. Don't give me the anomaly of Trent Dilfer. Look at the last 20 teams that have won the Super Bowl. Uh, given you've got the kid from UCLA and USC and the Wyoming kid, it's a stacked quarterback class. I've never been happier to go to the stadium and watch my team get annihilated 16 straight weeks. Gary Vaynerchuk joining us. Now, Gary, I ran down your bio at the beginning. But that's just a brief summary. In truth, you're an incredibly busy person who could be doing just about anything. So what was it about Planet of the Apps that appealed to you? You know, look, Jim, I think you know this. And first of all, I appreciate the love. Like, there's a lot of people in the Internet world, 2 million Instagram followers. Like, that world knows me. But, like, your aunt doesn't know who I am, right? So showing up on today's show with Paltrow and Will I Am and, 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 and Gwyneth, gives me more awareness. And I'm obsessed with gathering as much attention as possible and, and then doing something with that attention in my quest to win seven Super Bowls in New York as a Jets owner. So Apple's platform, the millions of dollars they're going to spend in, in distribution, giving guys like you the, uh, something like this to justify me being on the show, it, it just made a lot of attention sense. Um, and unlike my other three mentors, I am an angel investor. I'm like, that's what I do for a living. And so I knew not only would I be on a show with people way more famous than me, but given what the show was about, I was going to be great at it. And I thought that would be a winning formula for me. Hey Gary, you say seven rings like, like LeBron, not four, not five, not six, but seven? <laughs> Listen, I, I got to believe that Bob Kraft's going to have six, and anything to stick it to that guy is interesting to me. Gary Vaynerchuk joining us. All right, now when somebody <laughs> comes on, I love it. When somebody comes on Planet of the Apps and they're pitching to you, what are the things that you're looking for? The jockey. I think way too many people, I've lost so much money betting on an idea, writing a $50,000 check because I love the idea. What I didn't realize was the kid went to Ivy League schools, grandpa had a lot of money, and he or she didn't have a stomach for when the market punches you in the face. What I've learned in the last decade is I need that person who can deal with adversity. Give me the guy like Joe Montana who goes in the huddle and makes a John Candy joke when you've got a, you know two minutes under to win the Super Bowl. And so more than ever, I'm betting on the jockey over the horse. So I was auditing the kids and asking questions to see if I could break them down, or do they have the audacity to kind of answer me with something strong? So my my crew of apps that I ended up with were far more predicated on the founder than necessarily the idea of the app. You came to the U.S. in 1978, as you mentioned. Your father, Gary, was a stock boy in a liquor store. Then he became the manager. Then he bought a liquor store. So what were you like as a kid, and what were you like as a student? <laughs> I like the setup. For everybody uh, out there right now with a kid that's not doing so well in school, I've got good news for you. I mean, I was a hardcore DNF student, purebred entrepreneur, selling rocks and flowers, lemonade stands. Uh, I had a huge baseball card in sports business when I was in sixth, seventh, and eighth grade, making two, three thousand dollars a weekend selling Cecil Fielder and Frank Thomas, Eric Davis rookie cards. Uh, like now, Jim, I would be considered like a whiz kid because we've had all these entrepreneurs. But back then, everybody thought I was going to be a loser because school was the only way out. Um, turned 14, my dad drags me into his liquor store in Springfield, New Jersey, the wine library. It's called Shoppers Discount Liquors. Two bucks an hour, bagging ice. Realized people collected wine, flipped from Wayne Gretzky and Jordan to Chateau Lafitte and Camus and launched one of the first e-commerce wine businesses and grew my dad's business to a $60 million a year business. Okay, that business, the e-commerce business, which you launched, was called winelibrary.com. But then, Gary, YouTube comes out. What did you think when you first saw YouTube, and then what happened next? YouTube was three months old. I saw it. I thought it was going to be the biggest thing ever. I was right about e-commerce, the Internet itself. As you know, Jim, some people thought it was a fad back then. Email. I was just right. I was right. And so when YouTube came and I thought it was going to be humongous, I was like, screw it. Like, I believe in this. So I started a wine show called Wine Library TV. I sat in front of a camera, drank wine for 20 minutes. Hundreds of thousands of people fell in love with it. Twitter came out. I, uh, I decided to invest in it and really go heavy on it. Um, and uh, changed the course of my career, YouTube, because I realized social media was coming. The world was changing. And the next thing I did was invest in Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr, and that set the course. Clones, let me get at you for one moment about Ferguson. Ferguson is the nation's largest distributor of plumbing products, but their playbook goes deeper than plumbing. 
Pro contractors noted depend on Ferguson for the best in waterworks, HVAC, and facilities maintenance products in the game. Ferguson has over 20,000 knowledgeable associates always working for you. Combine that with Ferguson's 1,400 locations and 24-7 online ordering, and you will always have the home team advantage. See why the pros pick Ferguson at ferguson.com today. That's Ferguson. Now it's back to our daily jungle. Gary, you've got amazing videos, these amazing videos which you post. In fact, you have literally hundreds and hundreds of them on your YouTube channel. One that I love from a few years ago is entitled, The Most Important Word Ever. What is that word, and do folks, even your most ardent supporters, really know what that word means? You know, I think hustle, you know, like, I just don't, I don't, Jim, you know, honestly, I want to flip the switch on you, like, you didn't get here by accident. It wasn't just like one day, all of a sudden, you showed up with a national show and TV and all this. Like, the, like I had zero vacation days since I was 13 years old. Zero. It's hard work, man. Like, yes, there's talent. Yes, there's serendipity and luck. But hustle is the jam. Gary, when you talk about hustling, though, I mean, a lot of people think, hey, man, I hustle. I grind. I work hard. I really hustle. Are they really? I mean, how do you define hustle? What's hustling? Look, I don't want to sit here. Everybody's got their own work-life balances, things of that nature. My advice on Facebook and YouTube is completely predicated to people that complain, Jim, right? Like, listen, if you're making 42 k and you're on four softball teams and you love spending time with your family and you're happy as hell, you've won. Hustle, it's not about money or fame or all these different things. It's just the problem is I get 10,000 emails a week from people complaining like, oh, this sucks, my parents suck, the system sucks, the, the, the Internet sucks. Like, if you're complaining, the answer is more work, especially if it's smart. So I don't want to be the person, and I definitely don't deserve to be the person that, des- that decides what hustle is. Here's what I would, would say. If you're complaining, change your game. Gary Vaynerchuk joining us. If you're complaining, change your game. Now, you've got another famous video where somebody asks you for three words of inspiration that (laughs) she can think of any day that she's feeling down and things are not going well for her. What were those three words? That was a good one. She rolled up on me as I was rolling out, and I had no idea. She, like, bum-rushed me. I was scared for a second, and I just said, you're going to die. You like that one, Jim? I love that one. Lay that out for me. You're going to die. What do you mean by that as an inspiration? I love that one. I don't know, man. Like, I'm super happy because I'm grateful. Like, every day, forget about all the good things that are happening to me when things weren't as good. As long as my parents and my siblings were alive at the time and then later my wife and kids, like, it's good, right? Like, like guys, everybody who's driving right now, this may make you actually pull over and just look yourself in the, in the mirror. It is the odds of being a human being are 400 trillion to one. Like, you're more likely to win the lotto five times than even be a person. And I'm just driven by gratitude. And she's like, I need motivation. Here's some motivation. You're going to die. So do something about it. Gary Vanderchuk joining us on the program right now. All right. Now, Gary, you, you are relentless on social media. In fact, everything that you do. So what drives you? Where do you get the motivation from? Obviously, if you could bottle this, you would. And in a way, you're trying to in a different sort of way. But yeah, where does I, that drive and that chip come from? I think it's a circumstance, right? I was an immigrant you know, somewhere around fourth grade, Jim, I realized I was more likely to buy the Jets than play for them because I didn't have the size. You know, you go into freshman year of high school, four foot eleven, you've got a chip on your shoulder. I was a DNF student. Parents, everybody told me I was going to lose. I'm an underdog, right? Like, like I, I came from a place. I don't know if I can say that. I hope you curse. You know, I got you. Out. Like, I got, got you. It. Like, I, I just, I just, you know. I just was always an underdog, so hungry. I love proving people wrong. Like, I just love climbing that mountain. I need it. Like, I, I just, I breathe for it. So, Gary, do you ever allow negativity to creep in? Ever? Not at, not, no, not at this point, man. Like, somewhere along the way, it became binary. If the seven people I give a crap about are healthy... Like, I just will not allow something stu- – I mean, yes. I mean, like, I want to be frank here. Like, I, like, there's a bad moment. Like, I think I'm a firefighter, 800 employees, one of the biggest agencies. Like, every day there's problems, but not at a macro. At a micro, sure, for an hour here, five minutes there, but never when I wake up or go to sleep, Jim. Gary Vaynerchuk joining us for a few more moments. Now, Gary, you're huge on self-awareness. What's it mean to be self-aware, and why is that so critical? 
people people love people that are self-aware. Like, I know my shortcomings, right? One thing, you uh, first of all, you guys over there in Junk, you guys are unbelievable. The fact that you guys paid attention to me interacting with people while there was a break, kudos to you. And you saw it, right? Like, somebody said, one of, your, one of the people on Twitter said, Gary's accomplished so much. Wait till he actually hits puberty. Like, that's self-aware. Like, I understand what my voice is. When you own your stuff, you always win, right? So to me, I know what I'm good at, and I know what I suck at. And that's why I punted school. That's why I don't try to read. I don't give a crap about my grammar. But I'm a gangster businessman who innovates and understands what people do. And I feel like everybody who's listening now, if they just focused more on what they're good at, instead of focusing on what their parents want them to be, what they actually know, instead of wishing they were something, right, just actually knew who they were and executed against it, everybody would be dramatically happier and winning at a higher level. And not only that, Gary, but another message I get from you is, why do you give a damn what people think? Why do you give a damn about what Punkman669 thinks on social media? Why do you give a damn about what anybody thinks? Is that not a key? It's a huge key, including the parents. Like, uh, Jim, one of the things that, as I've amassed these millions of followers, like, I didn't. I have such great parents. I didn't realize it's your mom who's miserable, who's suppressing you. Like, forget about like you know, fancy pants forty seven. Some people can finally get over that. It's when your dad is your issue. Like, it gets much bigger than that, right? Like, that's where it gets screwed up. And so, like, I'm trying to, with all my audacity, I'm trying to be that person on social that says, point to me. Let me eat the crow. Let everybody be mad at me because I really don't give a crap. And then you go do your thing. Because you're right, it's stopping everybody from doing stuff. Now, Gary, you are also the creator of Vayner Sports, all right? You're a huge sports fan, but now you have an agency. Why was that so important to you? Why did you want to get into that aspect of business? Because these agents are ripping these kids off. They don't give a crap about them. It's another industry that is corrupt. I'm going to eventually own the Jets. I might as well learn it. So I, I, I started looking into it, and I just couldn't believe it. My brother, AJ, has Crohn's disease. The pressure of our... A company exploding made him want to take some time off, and he decided, "Hey, I want to go into this sports thing." And I'm a, listen, Jim. I'm just uh, uh, the next couple times in, in two years, three years from now, I'm going to be on this show with you talking about the number one pick in the NFL draft. I'm about to walk into that sports agent world and completely tear it up the same way I did the wine business and the advertising industry because there's only one move I've got bring more value to the other person than you're asking for in return. And that is not what's going on in the sport. All right, so Gary, give, give it to me, Gary. I'm right now in Southern California. You've got two great quarterbacks right here in Southern California in Sam Darnold and Josh Rosen. If you were to pitch them on why they should be represented by you, and I were to say to you, you got 90 seconds, give it to me right now. What is your pitch to them? Every other agent is completely commoditized when it comes to the contract on the field. It's completely commoditized. No GM is getting swung. But everything that's going to happen off the field, financially, the investments in the future of the world, and most importantly, most importantly, if God forbid something ridiculous happens to you, the amount of money and effort that I'm going to put in for you to be a successful man over the next 30 years is going to be disproportionately higher than everybody else because I already am financially secure enough and don't need to play on the economics that these other agents have to. Gary V joining us. You want to follow him on Twitter at Gary V, and that's V E E at Gary V. Gary, before you go, as long as we're talking about Twitter, you are an early investor in Twitter. You're a monster yes. on Twitter. You're interacting with my listeners as we speak right now. What do you make of Twitter as a platform, and in particular for athletes? Huh. So I think I think Twitter is the one true social network. It's a place where people can actually interact. Everything else is post and let people consume. Twitter's like the water cooler of our society. Everybody's got two cents on that Steph Curry pass or what Paul George is doing, right? So in particular for athletes, it's the place where they don't have to do an interview with you or ESPN or anybody else. It's a direct-to-consumer channel. And if let me just say this one thing, Jim, about social media and Twitter, and it's how I think about it. These things are exposing us, not changing us. So if a kid's a great kid, Twitter's going to amplify his greatness. And if a dude's a, like a jerk, it's just going to be amplified. It's just a clean platform. All right. So if you had a piece of advice for people, Gary, before you go, one piece of advice, one thing that we should go back to and think about over and over again, what is that? Punt every weakness you have and quadruple down on what you're good at. If you can sing well, do it. If you can write well, if you can sell, America loves to sell you 
on fixing your shortcomings, I'm telling you with every audacity in my body, it's the other way around. Just go all in on what you are. Gary, one last thing. There's another video that I saw, which was fascinating to me, and I know I know my audience, Gary. I know my audience, and I know this relates to a lot of people. I'll stalk you for the rest of my life. My man, we're good. We're good. I can't shake you, and you're not going to be able to shake me. All right, so what do you do? Is this not a young man's game? Is it not about the millennials? What if you got into your 50s? Is it then too late to take that big swing? Of course not. Like, you know, so I know what you're talking about, and that's been probably the most important video to me. I just don't understand how people that are 52 years old don't understand they're going to live for another 40 years. I get that back in the day that was old or when you grew up, like when I was 22, I thought 30 years old was like dead, right? I get it. But the data is the data and we just have so much more time. And if you're 52 and miserable with the internet around now, you can do so much more. It's just, it's not a young man's game. It's a young man's mentality game. Gary, if you had access to the internet 20 years ago, would you own the Jets right now? Yes. When I don't even want to talk about this, this is where I just realized how good of an interviewer you are. This is not asked of me ever. It blows my mind. Jim, I would have definitely not graduated high school. That I can make you a guarantee. And, yeah, man, I think, I think when Woody made that play off the Hess family, I would have come up with some cockamanian thing when I was 15, 16 that would have put me in a position to succeed. <laughs> Gary Vaynerchuk, my guest. Now, Gary, there are lots of different ways for them to follow you and to see what you're about. I've got a pretty good audience, too, now. If you want to direct them to any of your platforms or applications, where should they go? What's the best way to find out more about you and what you're doing? You're a very good dude, man. I appreciate it. It's Gary V-E-E on every social network but Facebook, and that's just Gary, G-A-R-Y. Gary Vaynerchuk, an amazing guy. Very, very, very compelling and critical, I think. Gary, I I meant that sincerely. We had never spoken before. I'd been very eager to talk to you, and that lived up to all the hype. I absolutely love that, and we need to do that again sooner than later. Can we get dinner, you and I? I would love to have dinner. You tell me when and where. I'm there. Done. Done. Love you, man. man. Take care of yourself. Let's go to the phones. Jim in San Diego. Good to have you, Jim. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. How are you, buddy? I'm great. All good here. Listen, I've been listening to you forever since you were on the Mighty 690 and you were a water point for Hacksaw. So um, I got to tell you, that interview you just had with Gary was spectacular. Best interview I think you've ever done, my man. Why? Why was that so different? I've done a lot of really good interviews. Why do you think that guy was so different? Well, the, well first of all, the character, you know, I, I never even heard of this dude before. And and he's got it. He's got it going on. But your questions were so good about drawing him out about you know what makes him tick. I, I just thought it was awesome, and I just wanted to tell you that. No, I appreciate it too. It's nice to hear that. Now I was never Hacksaw's water boy, but I was his update guy though. I was his update guy back in the day. So I'll give you that. I never. He never said, "Hey, hey, Rome, bring me water." Never said that, or even coffee. And I wouldn't have done it. But I was his update guy. You're right about that. Hey, listen, let me tell you about Gary V. And I, and I knew that a lot of you did not know who he was. And that's why I tried to set that up by saying, I've never met him. I've never spoken to him. But I read him. And I watch him. And I listen to him. And he's a fascinating guy. And I think those of you, I think you clones would enjoy this. And you clones started off the way I expected you to start off, by cracking on Gary V for his voice. But Gary... Gary's great. He's got another video where he goes on about, let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. Man, I have got such a thick skin. I've got, quote, an obnoxiously thick skin. You could punch me in the face 8,000 times and it wouldn't matter. And he's got this whole rap about that too, which I also believe. So I knew that when a couple of you got loose and cracked on him for not hitting puberty yet, that he would think that was funny and that he would laugh at that. And he did. And he did in the middle of the interview. In terms of the interview that I did and how it was good for me to draw him out. Number one, you don't need to draw him out, man. My man's out there every single day. He's right there. But the reason that maybe you thought the questions were good, I've got a fascination with him, and I'm very interested in him. And what can I tell you? I mean, I've said this before. Anybody who comes on this show, I'm grateful that they come on as a guest, and I'm interested, and I'm curious. But I think that I would be lying to you. Just like as a listener, there's some people you want to hear more than you want to hear others. I'd be lying if I didn't say a few times a year there is somebody, a man or a woman who comes on the show that I'm fascinated by, really fascinated by, and really eager to talk to. 
So I'm interested and curious of every single guest who comes on. But the truth is, there are a few times a year where the stakes feel a little bit higher, where you really want to get into it and talk to somebody. Paul George, trending number one on Father's Day, on U.S. Open Sunday. I mean, that does say something. It says that Laker fans are hyped, and it says that Woj dropped a Woj bomb, according to the vertical. George and his agent told the Pacers that he plans to opt out next summer and leave Indiana in free agency, most likely for the L.A. Lakers. And that sound you heard right after that news were thousands of car flags being slammed onto SoCal cars. And as you might imagine also, Pacer honks are pissed. And I get that. You're on the verge of losing a superstar in his prime. And that's a big drag. I mean, honestly, it is. And now that it's public, you'll probably only get pennies on the dollar in a trade because teams are unlikely to give up that much for somebody who could be just a one-year rental. And the Lakers are not going to do what the Knicks did when they gave up a ton to get Carmelo Anthony, only to not have anything to surround Melo with when he did arrive. But Pacer fans, let me talk about you for a minute. Let me talk to you for a minute. What are you so bent about? The timing? Yeah, I guess. Maybe it could have been better. Or maybe he could have waited until after the draft to give you a chance to move him and get a little more in the deal. Or maybe he could have waited until after free agency started this summer to give you a chance to add a piece or two that could entice him to stay. I guess. I mean, maybe. Possibly. But let's be real about this. Paul George wanting to come back to SoCal is not exactly a surprise. Nor is it a surprise that a superstar might not be all that excited to stay with a team that's gone from battling in the conference finals to battling to stay over 500. David West, Roy Hibbert, Larry Bird, they ain't walking through that door. In fact, they all walked right out that door. If you really want to be bent about something, be bent about the fact that Since he wasn't voted to an all-NBA team this year, you lost the ability to sign him to that super max. A super max that would have gone north of 200 mil. And now you can only offer him 177 mil. So let's be honest. It's not about the timing of the report that he wants to leave. It's about the report itself. It's the confirmation of what everybody already knew. And now it's real. And now that it is real, it hurts. When's the next time you're going to get one of the best two-way players in the world with the 10th pick in the draft? In fact, when's the next time anybody is going to get that? I'm not here to tell you there is a silver lining to this because there pretty much isn't. But this is better than him stringing you along, pushing you to make a bunch of crazy trades or desperate signings, making you think that you have a chance to keep him when you never really did. At least he was upfront about it. Would you rather find out in June of 2017 or July of 2018 when he can walk and you'll get nothing for him? Sure, you're not going to get full value for him right now, but at least you have a shot at getting something. I don't know. Maybe you can convince the Cavs into thinking that they need George to compete with Golden State, which they do. And then maybe if you get close on that deal, you can then convince the Lakers that they better make a move right now or they risk losing him to Cleveland forever. Maybe. And if you can, there's a good chance it will have been less than what you would have gotten without that report. But it's a lot more than you would have gotten if he stayed silent and then he walked next summer. I'm not saying you should thank him, but you shouldn't bash him. I'm also saying he doesn't owe you anything other than giving you everything he has every time he hits the floor and to be straight up with you about his future. In reality, he didn't even have to do that, but he did. He's done both those things. And finally, nowhere does it say that this guy's got to spend his entire career with the same team, especially if they cannot surround him with enough talent to contend for a title. It was incumbent upon them to make the situation attractive enough that he would not want to leave, and obviously they were not able to do it. Pacer fans, go ahead. I'll open it up to you. You can vent all you want. Just know that you're only going to get so much sympathy from me. What, are you surprised that that happened? Are you surprised? That this guy's going to leave? Just be glad that he didn't string you for the entire year only to show up on live TV and then make the announcement and stab you in the back. At least you know. 1-800-636-8686. Also, Cavalier fans, 
would you make a move for this guy knowing that it might be a one-year rental? Or do you make a move for that guy and think that if we have him for one year, he's going to see what it's like to play with LeBron. He's going to see how awesome the land is. He's going to see what it's like to be a part of this championship culture, and then maybe he won't want to leave. Or if you're the Lakers, do you make a move for him right now, knowing that Cleveland might make that move and that you might not get another shot? Or if you're the Lakers, do you assume, this guy's coming? Why would we give something up to get him right now when we can get him for nothing in a year? Let's not do that. Lots of different angles here. We are joined by the head coach of the Sooners, Lincoln Riley. Lincoln, nice to have you on. How are you? I'm great, Jim. How are you doing today? Good, good. Coach, good to have you. So what have the last few weeks been like since you were introduced as the new head coach of the Oklahoma Sooners, Lincoln? Uh, they've been great. You know, they've been a lot of fun, a lot of, lot of different things getting thrown at you, which I think is, is normal for the job. But, uh, yeah, it's been... It's been a whirlwind, but a great one. Yeah, we've got you know the staff, uh, you know such a great staff around guys that I know, guys that that have been here for a long time that I trust, and and already having a relationship with with the players and so many of the people involved with this program. It's it's made the transition that much easier. Lincoln Riley joining us now. People who have been around you, probably some of these people, in fact, and the ones who have watched you as a coach said that it was only a matter of time before you got your opportunity. But did you expect to get this opportunity, and did you expect to get it when you did? No, I mean, I, I don't think you could ever expect that. I mean, you just the timing, you know, was was just you know a little unique, obviously. And then yeah, to get your your first chance at a, at a place like Oklahoma is, is really a dream come true. So yeah, you always as a coach, you you always sit back and and you hope, you know, you 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 hope one day you get a chance to coach at a place like this or a chance to be a head coach. And yeah, for that to happen at this time and in this setting for me is. Really, just a dream come true. You know, it seems like on the outside looking in, it seemed really stunning, if not astonishing, that Bob Stoops stepped away when he did. But you're much closer to it. From your time with him and your conversations with him, did you have a sense that he might be leaning towards stepping down when he did? No, not the timing. I mean, I I guess maybe deep down, I never thought he would he would do it forever. You know, I just think he's that's not him. I think he's got other other things in life that he wants to do. So it doesn't surprise me. But I, I was certainly not expecting the timing. I mean, that's uh, but but that's him. You know, he's 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 invested in this program and he's unselfish enough to do it at a time where he felt like it was the best thing for for him and his family and for the program and and us able to continue to keep keep rolling all the great things they've built. So uh, that just shows you what a class act he is. Lincoln Riley, the head football coach at Oklahoma, is our guest. Now, look, you're obviously somebody who's very comfortable in your own skin and in your own ability. At the same time, you are taking over one of the elite programs in college football, and you're stepping into some really big shoes, and you've got a team with big-time potential. Are there any nerves that come along with that, or does it all feel pretty normal to you? Um, it actually feels pretty normal. I, uh, you know, there's some new things that you experience in this job that no matter what you, how much you prepare yourself for, you, I think you just got to experience them. Um, but at the same time, I've always felt the strong pressure that that regardless of what part I was of a team, whether as a player or you know a young graduate assistant or now as a head coach, just a strong sense of responsibility to do my part and to not let the other people down. And so that's. As far as outside pressures or expectations and all that, that that has always kind of trumped anything that anybody else could ever put on me. So I'm going to kind of rely on that. My my roles change, but you know my my motivation to do the best job I can for this team and this program has not. All right, so in terms of that, the role certainly has changed. Do you need to change your approach to change with that role? I don't think so because I think your approach is what you know, what maybe gets you the opportunity in the first place. Um, I think you've got to learn to adapt. Um, there'll be you know, I'm going to have to delegate some of the things that I did before to other people, which we have great people here that are that are ready and, and perfectly capable of doing them. Um, I'm going to have to do some different things as far as time management, but but no, I think I I, I want to I want to learn from all the people that have that have helped me and have kind of guided me to this point. But I also know that I've got to be myself. You know, I can't try to be somebody that I'm not, and that's probably some of the best piece of advice that I've gotten from a lot of people in the business through the years, and especially you know in the last 10, 12 days. Oklahoma head football coach Lincoln Riley joining us. So go way back. I mean, you're a West Texas guy from the town of Muleshoe. What was life like in a town of under 5,000 people when you were growing up? You know, it was great, Jim. That was, uh, I don't know that I could have scripted a better place to grow up in. Uh, you know, a small town, uh, everybody, you know, really together, a strong sense of community. Um, they love sports. Uh, 
I think a lot of the values, um, a lot of the just just kind of core character beliefs or traits that, that I have or hope that I have certainly came from that. And uh, a lot of things that, that I'll continue to bring into this program came from being raised there. So I had two great parents, uh, a great childhood. Um, like I said, learned so many great things, and I wouldn't change it for anything. And then you walk on at Texas Tech, and you play for Mike Leach, and then he cuts you, but he wants to keep you as a student assistant. He had this great quote, Lincoln, quote, I had too many quarterbacks, so I knew I was going to cut him, but I want him to stay around and be a student assistant. And that same day that I cut him, I offered him a job. Well, of course, he was mad because I cut him, so he wouldn't take that job until the next day. <laughs> it seems kind of funny right now. Did it seem funny to you at the time? And what do you remember about that day, that experience? Yeah, you know, we got a little bit different accounts of it. I remember it as being a little bit more of an option than what he remembers, but but right. uh, that's uh but yeah, it it was hard, you know, cuz it, you know, every young guy grows up, you know, dreaming about, you know, playing for this big college or playing in the NFL and and I just wasn't really expecting or even really ready for my football career to end, but at the same time when I got all the emotion out of it and I sat down and really thought about it. I, I knew at that point that I was very interested in coaching and I just did not know that I would get another opportunity like it. And that eventually, you know, was the thing that made the decision for me. Well, you certainly don't sound like it, but as you are no doubt aware, you are the youngest head coach in FBS. What's your reaction when you hear that and when people bring that up? You know, I've always been the youngest in any any job that I've had. You know, I was the youngest, I think, assistant when Mike hired me there and was the youngest coordinator when Ruffin McNeil hired me at ECU. And that's, I, I don't, I really don't have much of a reaction. I, I just, I think that's something for people to talk about now. But I think at the end of the day, you either get the job done or you don't. And I think my age is, is uh, not going to be a big factor either way, whether we do or whether we don't. Glad you brought up Ruffin McNeil. I was going to anyway. That's my guy right there, Ruffin McNeil. He's the best. You brought, he is the best. You brought him in to be a member of your staff. You worked for him at East Carolina a few years back. So what did you learn from him? You know, he had just a great rapport with the players. Um, he he probably more than any coach I've ever been around got the most out of players. He could just kind of bring another level out of them that I thought was really, really special. You know, he's, he's a great a great football coach, but just a great person, somebody that I trust. And, uh, yeah, when we had the opportunity to hire him here, it was really a no-brainer for me. I was going to say, he also told Bruce Feldman that when you were his offensive coordinator, you turned down multiple jobs to stay with him, some of which would have paid you double what you were making and one that would have paid triple what he could pay you. Ruffin said, quote, that's loyalty. So why did you stay back then? And then what's it like being able to hire him now? Yeah, I just I've just never been a person that that wanted to move around a lot in this business, and I I, I love coaching, I, I do. But if I if it was a situation where I had to move my family every couple of years, I would go do something else. I mean, that's just that's just not me. That's not you know my family, my wife. We just that we're not those kind of people. And uh, so you know, staying was not that hard of a decision. I loved working for Ruff and enjoyed East Carolina. We had a nice run going there. So. It was going to take something just life-changing for me to leave, and there was some, you know, luckily to have, was lucky to have some good opportunities throughout the years. But um, yeah, staying there with them was a great time and a great learning experience for me. Let's double back to the U.S. Open. Strange, strange weekend, as I mentioned. I mean, what a few days the U.S. Open had. That blimp crash, and I was not here Friday, so we didn't cover some of this. A blimp crash, an E. coli outbreak. The death of a 94-year-old spectator, not exactly what the USGA had in mind for its first trip to Aaron Hills. Neither was the fact that one big name after another missed the cut. And for all the talk that this was a major, for a major name to win, the big dogs never even got off the porch. Jason Day had a rough two days. Dustin Johnson, pack your bags. Rory hit the bricks. Justin Rose, Adam Scott, Henrik Stenson, thanks for coming. Which meant you had a Sunday leaderboard with guys like Brian Harmon, Tommy Fleetwood, and a dude named Xander from La Jolla. If Ricky Fowler was ever going to win a major, that was the one. That was his shot. Gave it a look, but Mr. Parr put on 12 to fall three shots back of the lead. And that was all for him. He's still, still just 28. So I'm not going to say that's not going to happen. But at some point, you've got to start cashing him in. Then it looked like Hideki Matsuyama was going to do it. Shot a Sunday 66, a back 932, including birdie, bogey, birdie, par, birdie, to finish to get to 12 under, and it felt like he was in a good spot. But that was until Brooks Kepka took over. 
He had an absolutely brass putt on 14 to get the 14 under and a two-shot lead. Then he chased it with that ice-cold bird on 15 to take a three-shot lead. Then followed that with a bomb on 16 to get to 16 under and slam the door shut. He didn't back his way into his first major. He ripped it, and then he ran away with it, winning it by four shots. This for the U.S. Open. Kepka, a major champion. Thanks to Fox Sports. So this cat goes low. I mean, he goes really low. And for all the cracks about the U.S. Open turning into the greater Milwaukee and the fact that Kepka had only one PGA Tour win before yesterday, hey, let's not get this twisted. This is not some Muni hack who's famous for working out with Dustin Johnson. I mean, yes, his path to the top was definitely different. It did involve stops in places like Kazakhstan, sleeping in his car, winning a Challenger Tour event in Spain where the trophy was made of plastic. He also had top 11 finishes in each of the other three majors. He went 3-1-0 at last year's Ryder Cup, and he was tied for second on the U.S. team in points. And yes, he can bomb off the tee, but he led the tournament in greens and regulation, and he slammed the door on everybody with his putter. And that flat stick etched his name on a trophy that he admits he's had his eye on for quite some time now. It's unbelievable. I mean, I looked at it so much last year. I think I could just about tell you every name that's on it. Um, you know, I stared at it quite a bit. And, you know, to be to finally have my name on it is, is pretty special. And, um, you know, it's, it's such a cool honor. He looked out for the past year because he's boys with DJ. So he's seen it. I'm saying this guy, man, this dude did not seem to have any nerves whatsoever. And as I mentioned earlier, when I talked to Rex Hoggard, when you've never been in that position before, it's very uncommon, very unusual to play as well as he did having never been there before. And not only did he not have any nerves, I'm not even sure this guy had a pulse. That did not look like a guy winning his first U.S. Open. It looked like a guy who'd already won three or four. Then again, he is the same cat who told Golf Digest two years ago, quote, if I could do it over again, I'd play baseball. 100%, no doubt. He then went on to say, quote, golf is kind of boring. Not much action. I come from a baseball family. It's in my blood, end quote. And that might be the case, but yesterday was not boring at all. There's nothing boring about smoking a three-wood, 379 yards on 18. A three-wood. That's two drivers for most people listening to this program. Just like there's nothing boring about tying the record for lowest score to par in the U.S. Open. That's a pretty damn impressive weekend, even if he didn't allow himself to show it. That's now the seventh consecutive first-time major champion, so it does beg the obvious question. Is it good or is it bad for the sport? Is it better to have competitive balance and a bunch of new guns beating the hell out of each other, or is it better to have that one guy like Tiger that everybody is chasing? You know, I got to say, there's really no correct answer. There's no question that the sport is bigger and better and these guys are richer today because of the cat. That he wouldn't have got that paycheck that he just got if not for the cat. But if you look at that group of first-time winners, we're not talking about a bunch of flukes that came out of nowhere that were never heard from ever again. Now, that would be a bad thing, but that's not what, hap- what happened here. This group includes the likes of Dustin Johnson, Sergio Garcia, Jason Day. Not exactly clowns who backed their way in. So it's tough to say whether or not it's a good thing or a bad thing, especially since it's not something that anybody can control. I, for one, I don't think it's a terrible thing. I mean, it'll never be the same way as it was when Tiger was out there just tearing it up and killing it, and it was Tiger or the field. But this isn't a bad thing either. It's good to see some new blood in there. Rex Hoggard is our guest. Rex, good morning. Good to have you back. How are you? Thanks for having me back. Uh, a little exhausted after that open. i got to be honest with you. Yeah, really? Why? Uh, long walk. If you went out on that golf course, I think from the first tee to the 18th green was nine miles. So when you, you made your way around that, if you looked at the pedometer, it was about 25,000 steps. So, I, But I needed it. I was eating bad food, so it's fine. I see you working. And that's one of those questions, Rex, that I knew the answer to when I asked it. So I know exactly what you're talking about. All right, so let's get into it. When Hideki Matsuyama went into the clubhouse at 12-under, there was a sense in some parts that while there were still a number of players on the course, that would be the number to beat and that there was a decent chance that there would be a playoff. What were you thinking at that point? Well, it was great that it happened in succession. So, I mean, what we know about Brooks Kepka is he comes from an athletic family. He is a baseball family. 
and you can tell just by talking to him, spending time with him over the last few years. I mean, this is the guy that wants the ball at the end of the game. He wants to make the game-winning shot. And at the pretty much the exact moment that Hideki walked up the hill and posted a number and gives him something to look at, you can't miss the leaderboards on that golf course, Brooks Kepka reeled off three straight birdies and really put the end of the tournament right there. His answer was, okay, if that's the number, then I'm going to go three, four, clear, whatever the case may be. And it really gives you an indication of what kind of player Brooks is. I mean, he is an impressive athlete, and when he's swinging the club like he was last week, he has the potential to do very special things. Rex Auto joining us. Still, Rex, the pressure of a major and the U.S. Open in particular is supposed to bring players to their knees, especially if they haven't been or if they haven't been in that position before. Kepka had one win on the PGA Tour prior to yesterday, but he came off on that back nine like he's been doing this for years. How do you explain the complete lack of nerves on his part? I think we can start using Dustin Johnson as a verb in this case because he and Dustin are very close friends, and we saw the same thing from Dustin last year, right? If anybody had ever had an opportunity to buckle under the pressure, it was Dustin last year with the penalty and all the near misses that he had been through in major championships. And these guys are best friends, and I think you see very, very similar athletes where they're able to sort of just block out everything else. We expect the experienced guys to be there at the end because they know how to handle their nerves. But Brooks said yesterday, and I have no reason not to believe him, that he's never felt nervous on Sunday, which is amazing to me, but I have no reason not to believe him. Rex Hoggard, GolfChannel.com, senior writer, and Rex number seven joining us once again. Now, he had a really strong Ryder Cup last year, but then he missed four cuts in six tournaments earlier this season, which is the kind of thing that would have a lot of golfers panicking. His coach, Claude Harmon III, referenced the Mike Tyson quote about everybody having a plan until they get punched in the face. How do you think those performances change things for Kepka? I, I love that quote from Claude last night that he gave me. I mean, it, it really epitomizes the type of person that Brooks is. And I think what it made him do is work harder. I mean, we always see, and we're seeing it more and more in sports where, or at least in golf, where young athletes, they have success early, they get paid, they have money, and they don't go as hard. They don't work as hard. They don't focus as much as maybe they used to. And what happened at the beginning of the season was really able to put Kepka over the top because it just made him work harder. He spent more time in the gym, more time on the range with Claude, more time focusing on what was important. And when he showed up this week, I think he realized immediately that Aaron Hills was his kind of golf course, that he was going to be able to use his power, and we saw it over the last four days, to really take advantage of it. And he didn't even have to have a great putting week. He was just able to overpower a golf course that played over 7,800 yards, which soaked that number in for a little while because that's an amazing feat. All right, so what about that number? What about that number, and what about that track? Do you expect to see the U.S. Open back at Aaron Hills at some point in the future? I literally had a different answer ready for you one minute ago before you called, because when I showed up at Aaron Hills, I expected everyone to decide that the baby was ugly, right? That we were all kind of looking for something that was wrong. Anytime you go to a first-time venue, and that number was just ridiculous, 7,800 yards. But I walked away talking with players and people associated that it was really a good test, that it wasn't the numbers, it wasn't the U.S. Open that we've expected, that it, we, we don't expect Justin Thomas to go out and shoot a nine under par round or, or a player to finish at 16 under like Brooks did. But given the conditions, and they can't control the weather, the golf course was a very good test, and I make that simple argument based on the fact that no one can debate that Brooks Kepka was the best player last week. And that's the sign of a good golf course, is you identify the best player in a given week. Rex Hodder joining us. Now, Kepka, of course, is the seventh straight first-time major champion. And when you look at that list, Rex, you've seen names that include Jason Day, Danny Willett, Dustin Johnson, Henrik Stenson, Jimmy Walker, Sergio Garcia. When you look at that list, what kind of thoughts do you have? I think that I fully expect there to be the eighth straight in just a few weeks at Royal Barkdale when we go over there for the Open Championship based on the idea that, look, I've always been under the mindset that post-Tiger Woods, which I feel like we've are right now that it wasn't we were never going to have an athlete like that at least not in my lifetime it was always going to be a star by committee situation and if you look at the committee right now it's expanding quickly i mean we look at dustin and jason day and roy mcelroy and jordan speed but now i think you need to start talking about brooks kepka in that list you need to start talking about justin thomas it could be any of five six seven guys on a given week that have an opportunity to win. And I think that's what we're going to see. And we're probably going to continue to see it into the near future until someone's able to separate themselves like Tiger did. All right, so not that anybody has any control over this, but what's better for the game? What's better for the sport? That star by committee or that one star who can't separate from the pack? 
having come up the last 20 years covering Tiger Woods, being involved with a tour that was really focused on one player, let's be honest, I really think that that one dominant player is probably best for the popularity of golf. And I know a lot of people are probably going to disagree with me, but I don't know that anyone can argue Tiger Woods' influence on golf. That being said, I kind of compare it to the NBA. When Michael Jordan left, it was the void that I think golf is feeling right now. And slowly but surely, these big players with big names and big games, they showed up and sort of took the mantle from them. But I don't think anybody just came out and immediately replaced Michael Jordan, just as I think no one's going to come out and replace Tiger Woods. So in the meantime, we're going to have this collective star power. Is today the day? Let's find out. Zach in Salt Lake City, coming in late in the third hour. Maybe that's the key. Hey, Zach, what's up? Yo, Romy. It's your boy, Zach, a.k.a. Silk the Third. And if you clones want to know where I'm calling from today, I'm at your mama's house eating all your leftovers and beating your top score on Tetris. Other than that, your house is boring and your internet speed sucks. But I, I was just calling in to make a talk on that big trade, Rome. My take is no matter what happens with this trade, that these teams will still be LeBron's bizlatch. You Celtics fans got a serious case of loser denial. You put these chumps in the West, and they're the Clippers, sitting in the four seed in prime position to be smacked up by my jazzies. The odds of them ever beating LeBron are the same as you guys signing the big three and bringing back Larry Bird from ancient history and creating a super squad. It's the Cavs conference, and you chumps who can barely beat the seventh seed Bulls are just living in it. I also heard that some bro-bra called in on Friday and was asking what I was on. I'm on the phones with Rome, boys, smacking smack in your fat faces almost every week, efforting to get in the smack-off pool while you trolls are sitting at home playing pocket pool. So cover your ears, haters, and tuck your head between your knees because you're about to hear the golden ticket music. Sorry, not sorry, haters. I'm out. Sorry, not sorry, haters, he's out. Is he out or is he in? Alvin's shaking his head. You understand that's my call, but Alvin is the longest tenured member of the XR4TI. Wow, Alvin, you're harsh today. Why are you harshing his buzz, Alvy? Zach, is he in with that? You ask yourself, is that a guy who could win? Is that a guy who could hit the board? Is that a guy who can make the event better? Is that a guy who has a little bit of flavor to it? Whenever we decide to run on one of our horses, we ask ourselves, hey, can we win the race? Let's not run if we can't win. Don't enter unless you really think you can win. Do I really think that horse can win? Zach. But then the truth is, sometimes people who own horses think, can we come in second? The purse for second's not bad. Can we hit the board? Should we run if we can hit the board? Do I put that guy in if he can hit the board? What the hell? Bro, bra, Zach, you can have a golden ticket. I've got a golden ticket. I've got a golden ticket. You got it, Stoner. It's yours. Thank you very much for listening. I appreciate you and I appreciate that. So go ahead and do what you do. Trust the podcast. Check back tomorrow for more Daily Jungle. We will see you then.